Hello, this is Dr. Kenshin Chen, the Editor-in-Chief of Algorithm. Thank you for listening to this podcast, summarizing the July 2020 issue of the journal. The first paper is by Peter A. Noseworthy et al., titled Generalizability of Castle AF Trial, Castor Ablation for Patients with Atrial Fibrillation and Heart Failure in Routine Practice. Using a large U.S. administrative database, the authors identified 290,000 patients with atrial fibrillation and heart failure treated with ablation or medical therapy alone from 2008 through 2018. They found that only 7.8% of the patients would have been eligible for CASO AF trial. 91% failed to meet the trial inclusion criteria and 15.5% met the exclusion criteria. Ablation was associated with a lower risk of primary outcome in the trial-eligible cohort in patients who failed to meet the inclusion criteria, but not in patients who met the exclusion criteria. The relative risk reduction was consistent, regardless of whether patients had heart failure with reduced left ventricular ejection fraction. While there was relative risk reduction, the benefit associated with ablation appears to be more modest in practice than that reported in the CASO AF trial. Next article is titled Predictors of Adverse Outcome in Patients with Frequent Premature Ventricular Complexes, the ABC-VT Risk Score by Alexander Vosko-Boynik. The purpose of this study was to develop a risk score to predict adverse events in patients with frequent PVCs. Independent predictors of adverse remodeling were as follows. Superiorly directed PVC axis. PVC burden. PVC coupling interval of greater than 500 milliseconds and non-sustained VT. The authors assigned points to each of the above and developed the ABC-VT risk score in the derivation cohort and tested successfully in the validation cohorts. The authors concluded that the ABC-VT score is a simple tool that predicts adverse left ventricular remodeling and future clinical deterioration in patients with frequent PVCs. Whether or not the scoring system can be used to identify patients for PVC ablation remains unknown. Coming up next, it is outcomes of castor ablation of ventricular arrhythmia originating from the left ventricular summit, a multi-center study by Fapo Cheng et al. A total of 238 patients undergoing castor ablation of LV summit ventricular arrhythmias were included. During median follow-up of 26 months, 80% of patients with acute success were free from ventricular arrhythmia recurrences, and the overall long-term success rate was 68%. Multi-site ablation was the only independent predictor of ventricular arrhythmia recurrences. These findings imply 
the multi-site ablation is needed to achieve acute success of LV summit ventricular arrhythmias, but the instance of recurrence still was high. Paolo Domenico Dallaglio et al. contributed to the following article titled Anti-Tachycardia Pacing for Shock Prevention in Patients with Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy and Ventricular Tachycardia. Among 251 patients followed for four years, 56 presented 326 episodes of ventricular arrhythmias. Among them, monomorphic VTs is the predominant ventricular arrhythmias. Antitachycardia pacing, or ATP, successfully terminated three-fourths of all monomorphic VTs because of the proven effective effectiveness of ATPs, proper device selection and programming are important to prevent unnecessary high-energy shocks in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The next one is examination of pathological features of the right atrial ventricular groove in hearts with Epstein anomaly and correlation with arrhythmias by Luciana Marcondes et al. They analyzed 33 autopsy specimens from patients with Epstein's anomaly. A prominent ridge along the right AV groove was seen in 15 of 33 specimens, so 45%. The AV groove was significantly more common in patients with than without accessory pathways. Microscopy of rich tissue revealed a muscular bundle in one accessory pathway specimen penetrating deep into the fibrous AV annulus. These findings indicate that a prominent ridge along the inferior right AV groove is a common feature in Epstein's anomaly and correlates with clinical history of accessory pathway. It presents a potential obstacle to catheter ablation and may contribute to the high recurrence rate after ablation. Coming up next is a paper by Kituch Anawatan Nasuk et al. titled Programming Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator in Primary Prevention Guideline, Concordance, and Outcomes. A consecutive 772 patients who underwent ICD insertion for primary prevention at three centers were included in the retrospective analysis. Only about one-third of patients had guideline-concordant tachycardia programming. During mean follow-up of two years, guideline-concordant programming was associated with 53% reduction in ICD therapy and 50% reduction in ICD shocks. There were no significant differences in mortality. This data showed that ICD programming based on recurrent, uh, based on the current guidelines was associated with significantly lower rate of ICD therapy and shock without changes in mortality during intermediate term follow-up. The next article is titled Appropriate and inappropriate shocks in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients with subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillators, 
and International Multi-Center uh, multi Study. The study included 88 HCM patients with SICD, followed for 2.7 years. Five patients, or 5.7%, had nine inappropriate shocks, most often because of sinus tachycardia and or T-wave oversensing. There were two appropriate shocks in seven secondary prevention patients and none in 81 primary prevention patients. No patients had a sudden death or untreated sustained ventricular arrhythmias. The R-wave amplitude increased the risk of inappropriate shocks, whereas T-wave inversions were protective. Because no patients in primary prevention group had appropriate shocks, the authors thought that HCM primary prevention ICD guidelines overestimated the risk of appropriate shocks in their cohort. Sunit Mittal et al. wrote the next paper titled The Worldwide Randomized Antibiotic Envelope Infection Prevention or RAPID Trial, Long-Term Follow-Up. In total, 6,800 patients re received their intended randomized treatment, including 3,371 envelope, 3,429 control, with a mean follow-up period of 21 months. CIED-related infection occurred in 57 envelope patients and 84 control patients. These data show that the effects of the TYRX envelope on the reduction of the risk of CIED infection are sustained beyond the first year post-procedure without an increased risk of complications. Coming up is a paper titled Epidemiology of Cardiac Implantable Electronic Device Infections in the United States, a population-based cohort study by Elisa Renard May et al. Data from 2016 Healthcare and Utilization Project National Inpatient Sample Database were utilized. Of 191,000 CIED implantations identified in the database in 2016, 8,060 infections, or 4.2%, were identified. The in-hospital mortality rate for these patients was 4.7%. The majority of patients with CIED infection had greater than or equal to three comorbidities. The authors suggest that patients with increased numbers of comorbidities should be recognized and managed carefully peri-CIED implantation given their increased risk of infection and use of healthcare resources. The next paper is Clinical and Procedural Characteristics Predicting Need for Chronotropic Support and Permanent Pacing Post-Heart Transplantation. The authors reviewed a total of 820 patients underwent 826 orthotopic heart transplantation, or OHT, procedures. Patients who are exposed to amiodarone and have older donor were more likely to develop need for chronotropic support after transplant. In multivariable analysis, recipient age and biatrial anastomosis were significantly associated with permanent pacemaker implantation within six months of OHT. These findings suggest that surgical technique and the donor age were the main risk factors for the need 
for chronotropic support post-OHT, whereas surgical technique and the recipient age were risk factors for early permanent pacemaker implantation. Pei Lin Xiao et al. wrote the next article titled Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Modulates Peripheral Sympathetic Activity. The authors performed a prospective study that enrolled 36 patients with half-ref who received CRT. 10 patients who received an ICD for primary prevention served as controls. CRT patients who exhibited wider QRS duration had a higher average skin sympathetic nerve activity compared to the control group at the baseline. After CRT, left ventricular ejection fraction improved, while average skin sympathetic nerve activity decreased significantly. The decrease of average skin sympathetic nerve activity was significant among responders, but was not changed in non-responders. The authors conclude that CRT reduces elevated sympathetic activity in half-ref patients, accompanied by improvement in systolic function at short-term follow-up. The reduction of sympathetic activity is mainly seen in CRT responders. Sjursti McIntyre et al. wrote the next paper titled Intentional Non-Therapy in Long QT Syndrome. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the outcomes of a highly selected cohort of 55 patients with Long QT Syndrome managed with an observation only, that is, intentional non-treatment strategy. Mean age at diagnosis was 37.8 years. Mean QTC was 448 milliseconds. None of the patients experienced an LQT syndrome-triggered cardiac event over a mean follow-up of 7.5 years. Compared to the larger treated cohort, this intentional untreated cohort was less symptomatic, was older at diagnosis, and had lower resting QTC values. These findings suggest that an observation-only strategy may be considered in a highly selected group of long QT syndrome patients with a clinical profile that includes asymptomatic status, older age at diagnosis, and QTC less than 470 milliseconds. With excellent outcomes and better quality of life than long QT syndrome patients treated with beta blockers. Long QT syndrome patients with this Low-risk profile should not receive a prophylactic ICD. Next up is pharmacological norepinephrine transporter inhibition for the prevention of vasovagal syncope in young and adult subjects, a systematic review and a meta-analysis. This systematic review was to evaluate the ability of three norepinephrine transporter inhibitors riboxetine, uh, sibutramine, and uh, atomoxetine to prevent head up tilt induced vasovagal outcomes in healthy participants and patients with vasovagal syncope. Four patients, uh, four studies with a total 101 participants met inclusion criteria. 
Noepinephrine transporter inhibition reduced the likelihood of vasovagal reactions marked by hypotension and bradycardia in healthy participants during head up tail test testing. This was achieved through heart rate compensation with noepinephrine transporter inhibition toward the end of tail testing, which in turn preserved cardiac output and mean arterial blood pressure in the absence of significantly increased systemic vascular resistance. The authors conclude that noepinephrine transporter inhibition prevents severe vasovagal reactions and syncope induced by head-up-tail testing in both healthy participants and patients with vasovagal syncope. Frederick Pauling et al. wrote the next paper titled Exercise and Arrhythmic Risk in TMEM43PS358L Arrhythmogenic Right Ventricular Cardiomyopathy. Individuals with uh, TMEM43P dot S358L mutation enrolled in a prospective registry were assessed for their physical activity in the year before their primary prevention ICD implantation. Those who exercise greater than or equal to 9 METs uh, or 9 MET hours per day, that is, high-level exercise in the year before ICD implantation was associated with an adjusted 9.1-fold increased hazard of first appropriate ICD discharge relatively relative to physical activity of less than 9 meta-hours per day. Based on this data, the authors suggest molecular testing be offered in early childhood to inform exercise choices reflective of the genotype. The next paper is by Yuan Yuan et al. titled Subcutaneous Nerve Stimulation Reduces Sympathetic Nerve Activity in ambulatory dogs with myocardial infarction. Acute myocardial infarction increases steady ganglion nerve activity through nerve sprouting. The authors implanted a neurostimulator in six dogs with acute MI and stimulated their subcutaneous nerves. Non-stimulated dogs with acute MI were used as controls. The stimulation but not the control group had reduced steady ganglion nerve activity at four and eight weeks after MI. Immunostaining showed confluent areas of remodeling in bilateral steroid ganglia and a high percentage of tyrosine hydroxylase negative ganglion cells. The authors conclude that subcutaneous nerve stimulation remodels the steroid ganglion, reduces steroid ganglion nerve activity, and suppresses cardiac nerve sprouting after MI. These original articles are followed by a review article written by Victor Nira at all titled Ablation Strategies for Intramural Ventricular Arrhythmias, and a second review article by Arash Ayana et al. titled Cryo Balloon Ablation Dosing from the Bench to the Bedside and the Back. This is followed by a creative concept article titled Novel Re-Expression of L-Type Calcium Channel CAV 1.3 in Left Ventricles of Fading Human Heart by Ujala Srivastava et al. A final article was written by Dan Roden et al. on behalf of the Heart Rhythm Society titled Considerations for Drug Interactions on QTC in Exploratory COVID-19 Treatment. The present issue of the journal also includes the abstracts from the late-breaking clinical trials accepted for presentation 
in the HRS meeting 2020. I hope you enjoyed this podcast for Hard Rhythm. I'm editor in chief Dr. Pen Shen Chen.